If you have your copy of God's Word, and I trust that you do, and if you don't, there's one provided for you there in the pew, and let's turn together uh, to the book of Jude. We've been studying through the book of Jude over the past uh, about six or eight weeks, and we come now uh, to our final sermon here in the book of Jude. We're going to be looking at verses 22 through 25. Uh, one chapter there in the book of Jude, last book before the last book of the Bible, so right before Revelation, if you're looking for it this morning. And if you found it, let's stand together uh, for the reading of God's Word. Jude, verses 22 through 25. And this is the Word of the Lord. And have mercy on some who are doubting. Save others, snatching them out of the fire. And on some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. And you can be seated. As we have walked through this text together, uh, I'll just kind of refresh your mind about what we have seen. A very short book here in the Bible, uh, one that is oftentimes overlooked, but one that perhaps contains so much rich, deep theological truth to be such a short part of the New Testament. It is a book that speaks directly to the errors of the age, not just in the day of Jude, but also in our day as well. Jude wrote this letter to the churches in order to help them confront the errors of false teaching. Uh, those men who had begun to cunningly sneak into the churches in order to deceive people, in order to mislead them and to lead them not to the truth of the gospel, but as actually as far away from the gospel as humanly possible, all under the guise of being great spiritual leaders all under the guise of being the most educated or the most noble or the ones who, in their minds, were closest to God. They were instead leading people farther and farther away from the truth of Jesus. Jude wrote this because he was troubled by what he saw. And he wrote to them in order, as he says there at the beginning, that they would contend earnestly for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And brothers and sisters, the job remains for us today that we are to contend earnestly for the faith. It is our job, our responsibility that God has entrusted to us that we would contend for the faith to ensure that gospel purity is maintained through the ages, that the same gospel that was given to us as young people that brought us to salvation in Christ will be the same gospel that continues to be handed down to our children and to our grandchildren and to our great-grandchildren. We must contend for the faith, and in the face of that contention, that means that we are called to a fight. We are called to a battle to stand against false teachers, to stand against those who would mislead, mislead those who are seeking Christ. We're called to stand and battle in a world which will be standing against us. It's not an easy task, but Jude wants to encourage them in the fight. And so all through this book, he has laid out the characteristics of these false teachers, how they would be recognized not only by the things that they were teaching, but really more practically by the way that they were living in lives in contradiction to some of the things that they said that they were. 
It was going to be very evident for them. And, and brothers and sisters, we can still see the same thing in our world today, that there are those who claim the name of Christ or claim the name of Christian, but yet the things that they teach, the characteristics of their lives, the way they live their lives are so counterintuitive to what the scripture actually teaches. And we must not be afraid to point those things out. Now, we live in a time where we're told that we should not be judgmental. The, the phrase that's often used, you'll hear Jesus misquoted from the scriptures where he said, judge not lest you be judged. Now, did Jesus say that? He did. But what did Jesus mean by that? Jesus did not mean that we cannot make good judgments about things. He meant that we should not judge unrighteously. In that same passage, Jesus was talking about one who would want to remove the speck out of his brother's eye while he had a log in his own eye. Jesus is saying, don't go and talk to somebody about a particular area of their life if you have the same area in your life that you're dealing with and you're not dealing with it on your own. He says, first, in fact, Jesus says, first, remove the log from your eye, and then you'll be able to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Later on in John, Jesus would tell us to judge with righteous judgment. So in fact, Jesus actually commands us to make judgments. So it is our responsibility to look and to make a broad assessment of see what we see, and sometimes narrow those things in. But we must not be afraid to confront false teaching when necessary. In fact, Jude makes it poignantly clear that we must do this because it is so detrimental to the health of the church. Jude was not writing this letter letter to exude his authority. Jude was not writing this letter because he found joy in pointing these things out. Jude was not writing this letter because he was on sign of coming out of power trip. Jude was writing this letter because he understood that if false teaching is allowed to continue, that it will destroy the churches from the inside out. And so he said, something must be done. Now, as we come to these closing verses this morning, we see really two different things that are happening. There are this picture that he's going to paint for us in verses 22 and 23 about how this work must take place. Because he's, he's not just pointing out the error of the false teacher, but he's also giving us a task of when we see these things happening, not just the false teachers, but the work that the false teachers are doing, then we have, what I want you to notice here in verses 22 and 23, we have a necessary work to do. A necessary work to do. Notice what he says, and have mercy on some who are doubting. Save others snatching them out of the fire, and on some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. What we see here is that it, as Christians, we have a necessary job of evangelism. And we have a necessary job of sharing the truth of the gospel. We have a necessary job that when we see those who are doubting, we see those who are questioning, we see those who are being misled, It's not just the job of the pastor or the elders or the deacons of the church to do something about it. It is the job of every single one of us to do something about it. I want you to notice here that we must do all that we can to rescue those who are being misled. Now, there will be times where inside of a church context, there will be a false teacher who's very clearly teaching a false doctrine that is misleading some. But we can also broadly see that our culture at large preaches a false gospel about who Christ is. If you were to define Christianity not by biblical terms, but by societal terms, you would find out that the Christianity of culture is entirely different from the Christianity of the Bible. 
And there are those out there who want to define Christianity by what cultural standards are. A God who does not judge, a God who is not angry at sin, a God who is okay with whatever you want to do, a God who will just say, do whatever you want to do, do what makes you happy. That is cultural Christianity, but it is a false gospel. But sad to say that there are many who are misled by that cultural Christianity. As Christians, we must not just be willing to see the false teaching. Jude is saying we must also be willing to do something about it. We must not just point it out, but we must then try our best through God's grace, through the power of the Holy Spirit, to do something about it. Here in this, these two verses, Jude helps us to understand that there are times that we have to adjust our methods. We can too often be caught in this idea that we do the same thing with each person that we share the gospel with that we always practically just do it the very exact same every time. Now, that makes it easier for us, right? We can just kind of march in there and, and, and do what we do. But what Jude makes it clear here is that there are times when we need to evaluate how we deal with individual people. There are three types of people that Jude points out here in this passage. Number one, there are those who are weak in the faith. These are those who are questioning what these false teachers are saying. There are those who are deceived, those who have been already pulled in, and then there are those who are pursuing. They have given themselves over to this false teaching. We see three types of people presented here, and Jude gives us also three types of ways in which we deal with each one of these individuals. The wise Christian, the wise pastor, must take the time to discern the person that they're dealing with so that they know the approach to take. It was Matthew Henry who said we must distinguish between the weak and the willful. There are some who are weak. They're they're just questioning. It's not that they've given themselves over. They're just baby Christians who've never been taught. And so it's easy for them to be swayed one way or the other. But on the other hand, there are those who are willfully in disobedience to God's word. They know the truth of the scriptures, but yet they choose to rebel against it. So we must distinguish those. So I want you to notice first that there are those who are weak in the faith. He says, have mercy on some who are doubting. These are those who are questioning. You know, the the deceptiveness of false teachers can confuse some. False teachers are very cunning in what they do. If they were not cunning, if they were not effective, then we wouldn't have to worry about them. But it's because they are so effective, because they do have such deceptive methods about them, that we must exhibit this care and concern. Paul pointed this out in a couple of different places. He pointed it out in 2 Corinthians. He says, But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. He pointed out to the church at Galatia, he said, You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law, by hearing from faith? Are you so foolish? Paul saw and he was concerned that some who had heard the truth and professed to believe the truth were now getting misled to be led astray. These false teachers can cause some to have doubts of what is really true because these false teachers would prey on the weak and the most immature among the believers. 
And it was very easy for some of these who had just come out of, of a world of wickedness. They had just come to Christ. They had just come into the church and began to hear the teachings of the gospel. They look at these false teachers who on all outward appearances would proclaim to be these very wise, philosophical, godly individuals. And they lived their life how they wanted to. So they, they had amassed great wealth to themselves. We know that he talks about that they would do whatever was necessary to gain wealth. They would hurt others in order to do that. So for the, for these Christians, they would look at this and they say, well, I, I'm not sure because on the outside, it looks like perhaps maybe they do know what they're talking about. But it is our task, brothers and sisters, to reach those who are doubting, to reach those who are questioning the truth of the Scripture. And how does Jude tell us that we are to do that? He says, have mercy on some. He says, those who are doubting, those who are just questioning, you don't just march into the room and broadside them over the head with the Bible. He says, you walk in there with mercy and grace and compassion. This is the part of it is that sometimes we miss. Sometimes people just need to understand the love of God. They need to understand the love of God that is contained in the Scripture, the love of God that is portrayed in Jesus Christ. That if God has sent his own son to come to this earth and to die on our behalf, what greater love could anyone show, John tells us? There is no greater love. There is no greater love than a man would lay down his life for his brother. And Jesus Christ has laid down his life for you and for I. These individuals need encouragement, not criticism. They need mercy shown to them. They need love shown to them. And how do we show them that? It's not by our own philosophical wisdom. It's not by our own grand ideas. All we have to do is take them to the truth of God's Word. Oftentimes I hear people say, well, I don't know how to share my faith. I don't know what to say in the face of, of objections that may come up. Brothers and sisters, just, just take people to the Word of God. That's where the answers are. You don't have to know everything there is about theology in order to effectively share your faith. You just have to have the Word of God. And God will speak His truth through the Word to that person's heart. God will give you what you need in that moment. What Jude is calling us for is to be willing individuals who will see those who are doubting, see those who are questioning, see those who are confused by what's going on, and just go to them and take to them the truth of God's Word in order that God's Word can work upon their heart to bring clarity to them. So there are those who are weak in the faith, but next there are those who, who are deceived. They've been pulled in. They've, they've started to believe some of the lies that these teachers are giving them. Notice verse 23. He says, save others, snatching them out of the fire. Save others, snatching them out of the fire. These are individuals in who doubts have continued to grow into a more convinced thought. The idea of snatching them out of the fire means that these individuals have not fully given themselves over to this false teaching, but they're as dancing as close to hell as someone can be and not be in it. Now, it's interesting the word that Jude uses here because he says to save others. It's the same idea that James tells us in James chapter 5. He says, My brethren, if any one of you strays from the truth and one turns him back, 
Let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his ways will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Now, we know that only God can save someone. None of us in this room have the power to save someone. But what Jude is helping us to understand here is the same thing that James was teaching us, is that although God does the saving, God uses us as his instruments to be a part of that process. He has chosen each one of us to be a part of that process to save individuals, to bring them back. We're not performing the act of salvation, but we are bringing the good news of Christ to those individuals that they can be saved. We're bringing them as ministers of salvation. God has called us to this task. Those who have been deceived, he says, to save. It's this idea of a rescue operation. He says, snatching them out of the fire. The word snatch there means to to seize or to grab. He's saying more definitive action must be taken. This is not a casual type of event. And many of you know that uh, for years, for almost 20 years, I was on the fire department. And when a, when a house fire begins to, to, to grow and you get there and you pull up on the scene, you know, the first thing you're concerned about is, are there people inside? And if there are, you put your suit on and you break the door down and you get ready to go inside and to do a rescue operation to find the people who are inside the house. Now, what's interesting about house fires is is it causes people to do all kinds of crazy things, especially young children. Young children have the tendency when a house fire breaks out, they don't try to get out. They try to hide somewhere. And so you're trained as a firefighter that you look under the bed, you look under closets, you look anywhere you can think that a child might hide if you know a child's in there because that's their natural thing. They hide. They, They try to get away. Now, as a firefighter, when you find that person You know what you don't do when you find that person? You don't look at them and say, hey, guess what? The house is on fire. It would be a really good idea for us to get out. Now, I'm not telling you what you have to do. You can stay here if you want, but I'm getting ready to leave and I want you to come with me. No, you don't even ask their opinion. You don't ask what they're thinking. You don't ask their thoughts. You grab them and you drag them out of the fire. Because you realize offending them or or causing even injury to them is much less severe than allowing them to stay inside the fire where certain death for them awaits. And this is what Jude is portraying to us. He says, if you see some who are beginning to believe what these false teachers are saying, he says, they're veering close to the fire. They're, They're getting close to this immediate danger. And he says, you snatch them away. You go to them with the truth, and you go to them with a much more severe and much more um, committed criticism to snatch them out of this danger. Because if you leave them there, then certain death is awaiting them. They're not going to, by their own strength, veer away. They're going to continue into their own destruction. Take them to the gospel. Again, confront the lies with truth. What is the most effective way to fight against a false teacher? It is always the truth of the Word of God. And brothers and sisters, this is why as believers we must be so committed to the truth of God's Word. We can read all kinds of other things, but the most important thing that we can read to prepare ourselves for the work that God has called us to do is found in these 66 books. 
studying his truth, studying his word. So Jude says there are some who are questioning on them you show mercy. He says there are others who are beginning to see you. He says, go to them. You're still going to show grace to them as much as you can. But he says, you need to understand how, how serious this situation is. You're going to snatch them out. You're going to go pull them away from the fire that they may not be fully and totally deceived. But Jude says there's even a third group. Again, verse 23. He says, and on some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. He says, have mercy on them with fear. Now, there's a couple of different interpretations of this phrase. What is Jude pointing out to here? Some say that the word fear there is relating to the idea of the garment polluted by the flesh, which we'll talk about in just a moment. A lot of the older commentators, and where I fall in studying this passage, is that he's talking about the idea that there are some who have been so deceived, some who are already given themselves over, that you must go to them, and as you're speaking with them, you must do so in putting, in fact, putting the fear of God into them. Not, not fear in this, uh, we talk sometimes about fear as this sense of awe, and this is there, but also just an understanding of the fear of the destruction that awaits them if they do not turn from what they are doing. Psalm chapter 90 verse 11 says, Who understands the power of your anger and your fury according to the fear that is due you? Jesus said, do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. There is a reverential, awful fear that God is due because of who he is. As Christians now, those who are in Christ, we fear God out of reverence and awe because we see how holy and majestic and glorious He is and what He has saved us from, and we have this reverential fear of Him. But to those who are outside of Christ, the Scripture is very clear that there is a fear of God's judgment, a fear of God's wrath that must fall upon those, and they must see in order to understand who they are and where they are when it comes to their standing before God. Because these individuals have given themselves over to this false teaching, Jude says that you must have mercy on them, right? And that's the reason we go. We go because we have mercy on them. The objective of confronting false teachers is to, to ensure the purity of the gospel. But on the other hand, the objective is that we would see those who might be given over come to faith in Christ. Our goal as believers should always be, no matter who we're dealing with, no matter how wicked their actions may seem, no matter how far they may seem to be gone, we must never assume in our minds that someone is too far or too away from Christ to be saved. Look at the Apostle Paul. He said, I am the worst of sinners. He says, if anybody didn't deserve to be saved, it was me, but yet God saved him. And let's be honest with ourselves this morning. If the person sitting to the left and to the right of you knew everything about you before you were a Christian, not just the actions that you did, but the thoughts that you had, the secret sins that maybe you had in your life, none of us deserve to be saved. None of us. We, we were all be considered too far gone. But yet God in his love and mercy and grace has brought us unto himself. So Jude says we need to have mercy on them, but have mercy with fear. 
John Gill said that we do this by more severe courses, sharper reprehensions, setting before them God's judgments against obstinate sinners. Matthew Henry said that we endeavor to frighten them out of their sins, preach hell and damnation to them. Now, let me offer a point of clarity here. This is not done out of anger. There is a way, my friends, that we would preach hell and damnation to someone. Now, if you, if you, if you talk about preaching hellfire and damnation, we, all, we always have heard, you know, it's like we need to get back to some hellfire preaching again. And there's a sense in which we do. We need to preach more on the danger and the judgment of God. We need to preach more on the danger that awaits those who reject Christ. But if a preacher stands up and he's up there railing on about hell and damnation and judgment, and he's doing so because he's angry, then it's wrong. We're not to do this out of anger. Jude says that we're to do this out of mercy. Because we understand who we were and now who we are in Christ. We understand the destination that used to await us in eternity in hell, but now we have forgiveness of sin and everlasting life in Christ. And brothers and sisters, that should cause us to have great mercy towards those that we see that are outside of Jesus and drive us to this point that we are willing to have difficult conversations with them to talk about eternal destruction, to talk about hell and damnation, but also because we're doing it, but not because we're angry at them, but because we love them and we're concerned about them and we have compassion on them. We must be willing to have those difficult conversations. I've heard the illustration used oftentimes that if a doctor walked into the room of a a patient who had cancer, And he knew that that patient had cancer. That doctor's not going to walk into the room and say, well, you know, I've I've got some really uh, difficult news to tell you, but I don't want you to be upset at me. You know, I don't want to, I don't want to ruin our friendship. I don't want to make this awkward. No, it's his responsibility. If he's a good doctor, he's going to walk in and he's going to deliver the hard news because he knows by delivering the hard news that then he can also say, but now here's how we're going to do this. Here's how we're going to treat this. Here's how we're going to try to to make this go away. Here's how we're going to try to, to heal this. And brothers and sisters, oftentimes we are called to deliver hard and difficult news, sometimes in challenging ways to individuals, not because we're angry at them, but because we know the hope that lies in Christ. That although they are lost in their sins and they are headed to hell, but we know one who can save them. We know one who can redeem them. We know one who can forgive them of their sins and give them everlasting life. That is our responsibility, Jude says, to do this with mercy and with grace. We must do all that is necessary to win them. All that is necessary to bring them to Christ. These are not easy conversations to have. These are not easy witnessing moments. But the question I would ask you this morning is, are we willing to do it? Are we willing to risk our friendship? Are we willing to risk a reputation? Are we willing to 
to risk it all in order that we might deliver the truth of the gospel to someone who desperately needs it. How dreadful would it be if on that day of judgment, someone there is standing before God in their sins, and we are able to see it and know that we had the opportunity. We had a chance to share with them the truth of the gospel. Brothers and sisters, we must be willing to do whatever is necessary. But now there's a final part in this verse before we move along. Notice what he says there at the end of verse 23. Hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. We must be aware that there is a great danger when it comes to confronting false teachers, when it comes to confronting those who have given over themselves to sin and to wickedness. This phrase is pulling from the Old Testament and the idea that garments were unclean. Certain things would happen, certain um, emissions and blood and, and, and diseases, and so a garment would be considered unclean. And if you were to touch it, you would be considered ceremonially unclean until you went through this ritualistic cleansing process. So he's saying that those who have given themselves over, their, their garments are stained, they're polluted by the flesh. And Jude here is calling us to, to consider this and understand, he says, that this work is dangerous, and if you are not careful, you will allow yourself to become polluted by those who you are around. It's oftentimes pointed out by the secular world. It's like, well, Jesus hung out with drunkards and tax collectors and prostitutes and sinners. And yes, he did. But he didn't hang out with them to enjoy the things that they were doing. He didn't hang out with them to condone the things that they were doing. He hung out with them in order that he might bring them to a revelation of the things that they were doing were wrong. It's okay, and it should be, as Christians, we should be hanging out and, and talking to people who are not Christians. We should be around those people who are drunkards and tax collectors and prostitutes and sinners, but not so that we build a relationship, enjoy those things with them, but so that we can share the truth of the gospel with them, that they would know that what they're doing is wrong. Jesus never condoned the sins of those that he was with, but he always brought them to a place where he taught them the truth of the scriptures. The work is dangerous, and so we must be cautious. We must maintain the purity that God has called us to. First Thessalonians chapter 5, Paul says, abstain from every form of evil. And why do we do all of this? We do all of this in order that we might see people come to faith in Christ. We have mercy on those who are doubting. We save others, snatching them out of the fire, and some we have mercy with fear. This is the necessary work that we are called to. Secondly, I want you to notice there in verses 24 and 25, a promised conclusion. Here, Jude moves to his closing remarks for this book. And in doing so, he offers this beautiful doxology to the church. And what this is, is it's an answer to the dismay and concern over the danger of false teachers. Because Jude understood that had he just left off right here, that it would have been very easy for those believers in Christ to think, well, 
If these false teachers can deceive so many, right, and there's such a great danger, how could we ever stand in the face of what these false teachers can do? If so many are being led astray, if so many are being pulled into their power, how could we ever have any hope? Notice what he says there in verse 24. He says, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. The first thing that Jude points to here is that all glory belongs to God because he says, now to him. This speaks to the power of God. Jude calls them to remember. He's called them to remembrance several times in this passage and in this book, to remember the things that God has done. And now he's calling them to remember Christ again. And here, he's going to make this beautiful exposition of Christ and what Christ has done, what God is doing through Christ. Because it's all about him. He is the one who gives us the strength that we need in these moments. The only way, brothers and sisters, that we can stand is by remembering the gospel. The only way that we can stand is by the power of Christ. He says, now to him, because only God can do it and only God deserves the glory. He says, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. That keep you from stumbling refers to the idea of perseverance. In light of the dangers, these individuals, they needed hope and confidence. There were dangers they were going to face. There were going to be dangers at every turn. And this is a glorious hope that doesn't specifically just apply only to false teachers, but it applies to everything in the Christian life. There's going to be all kinds of things that we face as Christians, and Jude gives us this beautiful promise, is that he is able to keep us from stumbling. The word keep there means to guard. It's a military term. It talks about the strength and the power there. And the word stumbling refers to the idea of a strong horse who does not stumble upon weak soil. Jude is encouraging these believers to know that in the midst of false teachers, in the midst of the dangers of this world, in the midst of everything that Satan throws at them, that God is able to keep them from falling. He's able to keep them from falling into sin. As Christians, we still sin, or there's none of us in this room that are perfect, but God is able to keep us from falling under the power of sin again. We don't fall under the, into habitual, repetitive sin anymore. He's able to keep us from falling into false teaching. He's able to keep us from falling ultimately into unfaithfulness. What does he say here? He says, not that he might have the power, but he says he is able to keep you from falling. He has the strength. He has the power. The psalmist writes often about this idea of stumbling, but of God's strength that keeps him in the end. Psalm 56, you have delivered my soul from death. Indeed, my feet from stumbling so that I may walk before God in the light of the living. Psalm 94, verse 18, if I should say my foot has slipped, your loving kindness, O Lord, will hold me up. We have this great confidence to know that whatever may happen in this life, we will not fall away from Christ. We will not stumble away from him. God does this for his own strength, by his own strength, for his own glory. 
John chapter 17, for their sakes, I sanctify myself that they themselves may also be sanctified in truth. He's able to keep us. I love what John tells us in, or what Jesus tells us in John chapter 10, which was read earlier. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given to them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. Why is this such a beautiful thing for us? Because it tells us what Jude says here, that he is able. How can you do it? You can't. But don't be troubled because we serve one who is able. He's able to cause us to endure to the end. He's able to hold us all the way to the very end. The scripture tells us, He who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. We did nothing to save ourselves. And brothers and sisters, we can do nothing to unsave ourselves. If you are in Christ, you are in Christ from the moment that you become in Christ until the moment that Jesus Christ comes back. You are in him because he's able to hold you. It's not your own strength that is holding you up. It is the strength of God who is holding you up and keeping you there. This flies in the face of what we see happening so much in our culture today. We've talked about this a little bit before, so I won't belabor the point this morning. But the new trend in this world is talking about those who are deconstructing their faith. You hear a lot of people talk about, well, I used to be a Christian, but I'm not a Christian anymore. Well, either one of two things is true about that statement. Either you were a Christian and you're not now, which is categorically false, because in order for that to be true, God would have to be a liar. If you were a Christian and now you're not a Christian, then God is a liar because Jesus said, those who are in the hand of my father, no one can pluck them out. And that no one includes you. You can't unpluck yourself from the hand of the father. But on the other hand, there are those who made a profession of faith. They made a statement. They made an emotional decision to follow Christ, but they never actually were saved. And this is the case with a hundred percent of those who say that they've deconstructed from their faith. And I can say that with bold assurance, because again, if, if someone was a Christian and now not a Christian, then God's a liar and we're all without hope. So if someone says that I was a Christian, but now I'm not, that means they were never saved to begin with. John tells us they went out from us because they were never of us. The scripture is categorically clear on that. Brothers and sisters, if you are here this morning and you are in Christ, you have great hope that it was not by your strength that you were placed in the hand of the Father. It was not by your strength that you're kept in the hand of the Father. And it is not by your strength that you will endure to the end. It is by the strength of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And what great hope that brings to us as Christians to know that it is him, not us, that causes us to persevere to the end. He goes on. He says, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. That word stand means to be established. It means to have firm resolve. 
And only God can give that strength. And that word stand actually refers to the idea of a sacrificial offering being brought before the Lord, being established there. And you remember what Paul tells us in Romans chapter 12. He says, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. God gives us the strength. He puts us there as this sacrificial offering before him. And there's a beautiful thing that Jude is pointing to here because he says he's going to make you stand in the presence of God, of his glory, blameless with great joy. In the presence of his glory. He's talking about that final day. He's talking about that glorious day when Christ shall return and we stand before God. Now, you remember all throughout the scriptures, no one could stand in the presence of the Lord. They would fall down flat on their faces or they would fall down dead. No one could stand in the presence of the Lord because of his glory and because of who they were. In fact, it was one commentator who said that in the presence of the glory is where nothing can stand that does not resemble himself. The only one who can stand in the presence of God is God himself. So how as believers can we stand there? Well, Jude gives us the answer. Because he says that he, God, through Christ Jesus, is going to make us to be able to stand in his presence, what? Blameless with great joy. That word blameless means unblameable or without blemish. It speaks to the idea of the Old Testament sacrifices. You remember the only sacrifices that were acceptable by God were those who were without blemish. The lamb, the ox, whatever sacrifice was being wrought, it couldn't have anything maimed on it. It couldn't have anything out of sorts about it. It had to be a perfect sacrifice. And brothers and sisters, we are not perfect. We are sinful. We're guilty. But on that day, we will be presented by Christ before God in perfect holiness and righteousness. Not that we've obtained ourselves, but that Christ has given to us. We are enveloped in Christ's righteousness so that when God looks at us, he no longer sees us as the sinners that we were. He sees us as perfectly righteous because of what Christ has done on our behalf. We are able to stand there blameless before God. We don't have to fall on our faces. We'll be able to stand because not because of who we are, but because of who Christ is. And he says that we will stand there with great joy. There will be joy in what we have been delivered from. We've been delivered from the curse of sin. We've been delivered from the fires of hell. We've been delivered from everlasting destruction. But there's also joy in what we have been given. Everlasting life. Reconciliation with God. All eternity in the glory of our Father. So we see a necessary work. We see a promised conclusion. As we close, I want you to notice, finally, just a great God. Look at verse 25. He says, To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now, and forever. He points out here the fact that there is only one God, our Savior through Jesus Christ, our Lord. One God. God has the authority because He is the only one true God. Brothers and sisters, it is okay to say that. 
It is okay to say that there's only one God. And there's only one pathway to God through Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father, what? Except through me. It is okay for us to say to the world that Buddhism will not save you, that Hinduism will not save you, that Islam will not save you, that Joseph Smith will not save you. Because there is only one true God. And Jude points it out here. He is the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. God is the author of salvation. He is God, our Savior. He's the one who put it all to action. But he does that through Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ is the procurer of our salvation. God authored our salvation and he sent Christ to procure it on our behalf. He came in obedient sacrifice to God in order that he may do what God had asked. He says, all glory be given to him. Glory is light and splendor, and it's all due to him because of his saving work. He is deserving of anything and everything that we can give and more. He said he deserves his majesty. This is the high and exclusiveness of his glory. Glory really is not enough. So now we have to move to majesty, which talks about how great his glory is. There's no way for our human finite minds to wrap around the infinite glory and majesty of God. He says dominion and authority. I love this. Because these are both tied together in the idea of God's sovereignty and his control. Dominion is the area in which he reigns. And where does God reign? He reigns everywhere, all over the earth. Jesus says, all power and authority has been given to me where? In heaven and on the earth. There is not one rogue Adam in this world that's not under the authority and control of God. There's not one spot on the face of the earth or in outer space. Now, one of the interesting things that we've discovered over the past several years is just how big space is. As satellites have been developed, they've been able to see further and further into the farthest reaches of space, light years and hundreds and millions of light years away. And guess what? Not one single speck of that is outside of the authority and the rule and the reign of God. Jesus Christ is ruling and reigning over the government, over the church, and over everything that happens in this world. And not only is he ruling, he has all authority. He has the right to govern. He has the right to do whatever he wills. We have no way to question God, no right or authority to question him because he is the one who has dominion and authority. And Jude says this happens before all time, now and forever. The scripture often points to the idea of generation after generation after generation. There has never been a time when God was not majestic and full of glory, reigning in power and authority. And there will never be a time when God is not reigning in power and authority and majesty. Now we come to this final word, and this is a word that oftentimes we overlook because we use it so frequently. We use it when we pray. We use it here at the church. But Jude closes this with this word, amen. Now, if you don't know what that word means, that word means, so be it. Let it be so. So Jude comes to the end of this glorious doxology talking about how great God is, how majestic he is, all power. And he ends with this thunderous, so be it. Let it be so. And we echo his words this morning. May God reign and rule. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this time.
We thank you for your word, for your instruction that you've given us. And we pray, God, that as we seek to follow more strongly after you, Father, that you would give us the strength that we need. Lord, help us in times of sharing our faith, as Jude calls us to here, to be willing and to be knowledgeable, Lord, that we need to evaluate the people that we're, just, we're talking to. Lord, to understand that there are some who we have mercy with compassion, that there are some who we snatch out of the flame, and there are some, Father, who we go to mercy, but also given with fear of the truth of who you are and the judgment that awaits. God, give us the wisdom in those moments to know what to say, and we're thankful that it is not up to us, but it's by the power of your Holy Spirit that you give us the words to say. And Lord, we also know that if we depend upon your word, we will never, Lord, have nothing to say. Because you give us, you you have given us your word. You've given us your authority. And Lord, as we think about what Christ has done, that we will be able to, Lord, to stand, that we will persevere to the end. Lord, what a glorious knowledge of knowing that we do not have to fear anything in this world. Nothing, nothing we have to fear in this world because you are in control, you are in power, and you will keep us to the very end. Lord, guide us in the wonder of that. May we never fall short of remembering the glory that you deserve. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.